I'm flying solo today, everybody. My two co-hosts are not here, but we have a full show lined up for you guys today. We are back with another edition of the Gentleman's Dojo. I am one of your hosts, Gary Cannon. My good pal Steve Byrne is not here today, nor is our other friend Patrick Keene, both gone. But I'm excited because Steve Byrne and I are leaving tomorrow to do a big USO trip to parts unknown. Uh, I will say this, I'm very excited to have today's co-host joining us. I've known you for a long, long time. Yes. When did we When did we meet? Probably uh, May of 2003. Is that when it was? I moved down to LA from San Francisco, and you and I were working together with Brett Butler at the Ontario Improv. Yeah. And that was probably one of the first times that I was actually featuring for somebody. <laughs> really? Well, you I've were never. A I've never. MC there for a yes while? for a long, long time. But let me give you the proper introduction. Okay. You have your own podcast as well called The Gentleman's Dojo. No, I'm Steve that's Byrne. our <laughs> <laughs> uh, The Full Charge Power Hour. Yes. I'm Matt Fulcheron. Matt Fulcheron, uh, who I've known for a long, long time. Uh, one of the nicest guys around. Come on. So, Fuck that, you. No, man. that's that's true. That's a true story. People are gonna walk all over me now. We've... Nobody wants to hear that, man. <laughs> nobody. Nobody. And our guest today, I'm glad that you, Matt, are able to join us because mm-hmm. I've been trying to get this guy on for a long time. And he's been busy, he's been on the road, he's been gone, but we were finally were able to lock it in, and I'm so excited. He has a brand new book out. Well, this came out, what, last summer, maybe? September. September. It's called Kicking Through the Ashes. This guy, I know him from the movie I Am Comic, was in that movie. Right, right. Uh, I Killed, another yeah. great book. Yeah. This new book, Kicking Through the Ashes. How about a gentleman's dojo welcome, everybody, for Rich Scheidner. Come on, yeah. let's do this. Ah. Let's do this, Rich. Real nice guy. Super <laughs> nice guy. Super nice guy. So so what was the basis for writing this brand new book? What was the thought? And the foreword in here is by Bill Maher. What's right. the connection with you and Bill? Uh, Bill's on the, Bill Burr's on the back, too. A lot of yeah. uh, verbs on the back. But I, Bill and I have known each other since I moved to New York City in 1979. Wow. And um, we've been friends all that time. And... Uh, he agreed to do the the forward for I I I was writing stories. You know, you have, we all have stories. You, you you hang around long enough in stand up comedy, you get stories. Yeah. So I had stories, and Phyllis Diller wanted me to write a book. Uh, we were friends, and she wanted me to write a book on the history of stand up comedy. And I started doing it and all the research, and then because I said this is looking like a textbook, I really can't get a right. It's looking too boring, too dry. And I said, well, I'm just going to write about the era that there, there are two big eras in stand-up comedy. Yeah. The late '50s, early '60s revolution that Lenny Bruce and Mort Sahl started, right. where stand-up comedy became an art form. Before that was a side dish; it was looked down upon. It was an MC. Yeah, it was an MC. You know? Yeah, stand-up comedy yeah. was an MC. It was like you're doing big shtick. It was the the big banana comics. Everybody's material is interchangeable, and these guys made it what the comics said relevant, important, and personal. And then uh, the boom of the 80s where it went right. from no comedy clubs to every small town has a bar with a comedy night and yeah. every, every city has multiple stand-up comedy clubs and you know back in um, 1980 by, by, by the end of 1980 maybe a dozen stand-up comedy clubs by 8,450 that's, wow. right. that's what I count that I did and in the late 70s uh, uh, Garvin's in Washington D.C. was the first paying stand-up comedy club on the East Coast mm-hmm. and there were three on the West Coast all in California Right. But then it just exploded in the early 80s. And so I just wanted to write about that era. Right. And so you started before even really paid or anything? Oh, there yeah. When no I started clubs? in 1977, there were no comedy clubs. I started in Washington, D.C. I mean, I went to a coffee house. I did it for the first time. I, I would go around. I would I would 
friend of mine had a band down and played down in Georgetown Bar, and I'd go into a band break, and I'd go up and try to do comedy. Right. There were all these singer-songwriter nights in pubs. I'd talk my way onto there and started doing those. and Anywhere. I, I mean, I had one time we went, and this is a, a friend of mine, he was sort of like my ad hoc agent at uh -huh. law school. He said, I got a place here. There's a place that does like a, a, a talent night down in southwest Washington. It's called the Gay Cabaret. Okay. So we were like clueless. We thought gay like the Flintstones. Gay all the time. <laughs> right. We were totally clueless. The gay but, 90s. But this 77, it was like, yeah, gay 90s. It was like, oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. It, was, it was in the closet, man. Have a was gay packed. old time. It was all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So we get down there, and the guy was very nice to manage. He says, yeah, fellas, you know, yeah, you're right. You have a talent. You would be fine. Welcome here. But tonight, you know, once a month, we do ladies' night. So again, we're clueless. We go, ladies' night? Right. Perfect. We're, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> All lesbians. <laughs> but I go up anyway. I don't care. Sure. And I get up there and I have, I mean, I'm, chi I'm chilling the room like you can't chill a room. <laughs> I mean, I'm dropping the temperature. <laughs> Sub-zero. People yeah. see their breath. And uh, and finally, I, I, I'm, I'm bombing so bad. And I just blurt out. I go, I guess I'm your worst nightmare. And they laugh. Right. But I'm so raw. I don't know. That's the exit line. Take that laugh. Sure. You know what I mean? Right. Get yeah. out. Now, I th encourage me to do more. Right. I start talking again. <laughs> And this woman down front, I forget, she just stands up, doesn't say a word, walks up on the stage, takes me by the elbow and leads me off. Not a word. It's like, <laughs> enough. Yeah. It's enough. Right. Yeah. It's, you it, went over like a cock and a, uh, a punch bowl. <laughs> yeah. So who, who was in your class when you kind of started back in the late 70s? Well, that that class, I mean, in Washington, D.C., when I started, it was Lewis Black, Kevin Rooney, Ron wow. Zimmerman. We were all doing it. And But that class of then, but when I got to New York City, it was Rick Overton and Jerry Seinfeld, Larry Miller, Carol Liefer, uh, who became my first wife. There was, there were, there were um, uh, Gilbert Gottfried, uh, 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 Richard Belzer was like wow. the king right. of Catch a Rising Star. There were three stand-up comedy clubs, showcase clubs that didn't pay any money, paid $5 cab fare. For wow. a set, and those were the three clubs in New York City: so, Catch a Rising Star, Comic Strip, and the Improvisation. It seems like a lot of you guys got the same idea at the same time to start stand up, even though it wasn't necessarily. No, no, there were all these like scenes. There were all these scenes around yeah. in the late seventies. Houston had a scene with Bill Hicks and Sam right. Kennison, those guys. Then there, up in Boston, there was. Goldthwaite, Bob Goldthwaite, and Barry Crimmins at the Ding Ho, and Lenny Clark. Then in San Francisco, of course, there was the the there was the Holy City Zoo. They right. had a scene. Philadelphia had a scene. Washington D.C. had, but nobody knew each other had seen. That's what I mean. It's so interesting, like pre-internet, right? When it's just like, and it's happen, it happens a lot in history, not just stand up, where everyone's kind of having similar ideas mm -hmm. in isolated places. Right. Everyone's coming to the same conclusions. Right. Oh, I'm gonna do stand up in right. like a new artistic way, even though it's not really. A, a set thing yet? No, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. I remember a guy came in. We were El Brookman's was a bar. We were doing it in Washington D.C. And this guy comes in. He goes, "We had a place like this out in San Francisco. A guy's named Tony DePaul, and he was managing. He said the Holy City Zoo. And he said, "You come out there." And I, I was like, "So like summer '78, I drove a car out to to go to San Francisco to go to L.A. to check because I'd heard about the Comedy Store by then, uh -huh. and I'd heard about. I didn't even know there were clubs in New York City till." Uh, a friend of mine in law school, she came to see what we were doing. He said, you know, there are guys doing what you're doing up in New York City. I was like, what? Right. What? We're not the only ones. Yeah, really? I thought we invented this thing. Right, right. You know, right. Yeah. Did you know Letterman pretty well? I did a show about a dozen times. Okay. But I didn't know him well. I mean, we 
you know, I just know him from doing the show. We just had on the author. Uh, he wrote a book about Letterman, like the last king of late night, Jason Zynoman. Yeah, I've heard of this um, book. I haven't gotten it yet. And what was your perception of Dave, like doing the show and just knowing him as well as you could have known him? Well, you know, but he was, it was different. Johnny was my dad's guy. So right. Johnny was like, I have a father figure with me and I had a problem with my dad. So I had never could got, get loose with Johnny, to be honest. It was just my thing. Sure. But Letterman was different. You know, he was my age and he'd come back and he'd hang out and, you know, he'd just have a tennis ball. He'd just bouncing off the wall and we'd be talking in the dressing room. And I felt loose with him. I felt He had a, re- a rebellious spirit too. Right, right. Like against NBC. Right. Against General Electric. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Against and he did, everything. Yeah, like yeah. He, and he would kind of mess with the audience too. Right. So that kind of maybe invited you to do the same yeah, thing. Yeah, so I felt loose about it, you know, and he'd encourage me to, like, you know, we'd be talking, he said, hey, you should do that on the panel. Tell, tell that story. Right, right. Like, you know, I go, really? He goes, yeah, do that one. Do that one. Have you so, ever seen uh, Sam Kinison's first appearance on there? He's, like, walking <laughs> yeah. into the audience yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine doing that today? No. Unheard of. There's, no. They, they, they would not let you out. do it. They would cut it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he seemed, like, Letterman did seem to have kind of that he was very uh, he would always take care of the people that he knew like uh, Barb Sarlat from San Francisco yeah. always took care of those guys yeah. pa- Jimmy Walker yeah Paul Paul stops in the first time I did a show Paul stops in and he goes uh, what do you want what do you want for your song and I just go Almond Brothers Whipping Post you got it yeah they're great so I go you know next time what do you want Elvis Costello pump it up you got it you know <laughs> so was, I, I always like that you know I'm not going to go to John you're not going to go to Doc Simpson hey can you play Whipping Post when I come out you know it's not going to happen right, it right, just right. had a different vibe for me That's so you're doing stand up in New York right yeah. and then how long are you doing that before you make the transition Transition to what? Well, you're doing stand-up, but then you, you, you stay out in New York, right? Oh, you stay in New York. New York was where I went. But back then, again, this is back then, there was Letterman showed in Camonte at the end of 82, right? right? Right. So there was nothing happening in New York. I was doing, uh, I got hooked up doing this morning, Good Morning New York show where they'd give me a, like a little camera guy right, and a right. sound guy and go out in the street and do man-on-the-street stuff. Awesome. But there was nothing to do there. There was, there was a night flight was a, a USA Network header. Remember, remember right? that. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd go, come do stand-up with, and you'd literally go there, and they'd put you on a pedestal, this little pedestal, and you'd do it with that, and you'd hope that like three or four people standing around might laugh. Uh-huh. And, and that was gruesome. And I did that one time for like 75 bucks, and that was, that was terrible. <laughs> so that's before the taping that's or before, No, that's before. That was the only thing to do in New York. They, gotcha. go, they, they started doing this, and nobody was, had cable. This was 79, sure. 80. Though. So you, you graduated to L.A. You, everybody was like, when are you going to move to L.A.? Right. And it was always on everybody's mind. When are you going to move? Like, Seinfeld's move. When are you going? Larry Miller's move. When are you going? And I remember Uncle Dirty. There was a comic named Uncle Dirty who was a contemporary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a contemporary. His real name was Robert Altman, so he went by Uncle Dirty. He was friends with you know uh, Richard Pryor and Carlin. He was an older guy. He was like twenty years older than the rest of us. And 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 remember one time we were sitting around. And everybody's like, "When do we move? When do we move?" He goes, "You don't move to L.A. until they say Moisha will pick you up at the airport." <laughs> right. That's a good. Uh, right? That's, a good, that's, rule a, of that's thumb. a good rule of thumb. You know. We'd heard that too because when I started doing stand up in San Francisco, you always heard, "Don't move until they want you to move." Right. Yeah. And then I guess as time goes on, you find out that that's kind of this bullshit. And also, theory. they might never want you to move. They, yeah. Well. Well. <laughs> yeah. Who well, wanted so me to come least... in to stand up? If you did that, you just I'd still be back in my hometown. <laughs> exactly. In a factory. Yeah. Nobody said, "Hey, come do stand up." Yeah, you got to make a move. We need more right. stand ups down in L.A. There's yeah. a shortage. <laughs> who's gonna Who's gonna make that call? Like I remember people always, or they always said, "Don't move until you're featuring in San Francisco." It's like, but you realize when you move to L.A., you don't need to feature. You don't, you need five or six good minutes. Nobody gives a shit about featuring. In L.A., nobody cares. Back or five at, or six good minutes. That's yeah, it. That was it. I go around and people go, "Do you think I'm?" I, I was in a, 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 it was a place called a Comedy Cafe in Washington D.C. Like late, late uh-huh. '80s, early '90s. I go in there one night, 
and a friend of mine's waitressing, so I'm waiting for her to get off, and we're going to go hang out. And uh, this young comic comes up to me, young black comic comes up to me, and says, hey, man, I, I've seen you on TV, you know. Will you watch my set? Watch my set. I said, all right, so he gives on late night. It's Martin Lawrence, young Martin Lawrence. Yeah. He's about uh-huh. 18, 19. He, watched, he comes and says, what do you think? I said, move to New York. He's only right. got 15 minutes. I said, move to New York. That's you're enough. ready. You're yeah. ready. You're ready. All so, you're going to do is get more material down here. You don't, sure. You're, you're ready. It's not about how much time the material you got or whether you're ready to feature. It's like, are you good enough to hang? You're good enough right. to hang. Right. So how long did you spend in New York before you moved to L.A.? What was the, what was the next step? I, went, I moved there in 79. and moved out to L.A. in 82. So okay. Whatever it is. And did you like that move? I mean, was it a... No, you know, I didn't care. I was going to drink and do drugs and do stand-up comedy no matter where I was. And my, my, my wife at the time got a pilot in L.A. Barry Levinson did a pilot called Toasted Manhattan, which was sort of like a takeoff of the Ed Sullivan show. Right. And her and Paul Reiser and Gilbert Godfrey got cast in it. And she said, I want to move to L.A. I said, all right, let's go to L.A. It, does that is it a uh, little jealousy because she's now no I didn't I, I didn't have a jealousy over that I didn't really feel jealous you know we used to fight over bits she was a stand up comic and right. we'd fight over bits and there was a little back and forth she did Letterman first I did Carson first there was you know we were both it, it was we were both into our careers that was big, yeah. basically it you know so you were supportive we were of two, each other yeah I think it works if you're this is my opinion again I've noticed other stand up comics who are couples. It'll work if one's clearly a headliner and one's clearly a feature. (laughs) And they accept those roles. Right. But we were two headliners. Sure. Right. I remember one time, Jeff Foxworthy told me a story, I didn't even remember it, and and she was on stage and I was headlining and we were in Atlanta and she, you know, she's running the light. I mean, you know, like a comic. She's she bit in them at twenty five and went, yeah. I'm not letting this go. Right. You know, the forty minutes she's still up there killing them and I'm in the back room going, Close with it, close with it. Right. You know, every time you get a big laugh, close with that one. Right. And Foxworthy he didn't know me at the time, he just says, Hey man, take it easy, go, It's my wife. I'll take it as easy as I want. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Because yeah. you're ready for her to wrap it up. You're, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you're eating my time. We all know a comic Every comic knows there's only there's only so much lifespan in any audience. Right. They, yeah, you know and I mean? 15 minutes you can over wear them out. is way over. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can wear them out. Foxworthy should not be saying take it easy. Well, he just started. He had just started. <laughs> oh. he, he didn't know anything. He was just, I mean, literally, gotcha, gotcha. he had just gotten into the business. Right, right, you know? right. So he laughed about it. He said, yeah. I didn't know, man. I didn't yeah. know. When you moved to L.A., who are the guys that you kind of find yourself hanging out with out here? Well, Jay Leno was like a one-man welcoming committee. Yep. And then, of course, I was hanging out here with the same people that I hung out with in New York. You know, Rick Overton, uh, of course, Seinfeld's area. But I, I gravitated towards Sam Kennison. He became a, a friend. Uh, um, uh, th- that was just, you know, we were just doing the same sort of things back then. Do you find a lot of guys that are moving, that move from New York to L.A., they're now starting over again? Everybody's kind of trying to get spots that maybe they were getting, you yeah, were getting more yeah, stage so, time back but, east? But it, it, I didn't have a, you know, it's so funny. I mean, I just, I got in, I came out. I had done the evening improv. I came the improv in, on Melrose was my natural place. I hung out there, and I remember Sam said, "Come on over. Can you go on? I want you over to the comedy store. Come over." And I went over and I auditioned for Mitzi uh, on a recommendation. I think Argus Hamilton. A couple of people said, "You know, this guy's funny. Mm-hmm. You should have him." I got in. I started getting spots. I didn't have a problem. I remember one time I walked in. It was early on. There was still a lingering resentment on the strike thing right. that I didn't know about. I wasn't even really aware of the strike. It wasn't like, oh, we all read the book on the strike. Right. And for those that don't know, the comedy 79. store, there was a strike. In 1979. So there was yeah. a lot of bad feelings. People yeah. crossed the line, became scabs, broke, tried to break the strike. Right. Another ones held the line. And so there was a lot of bad feelings. So I'm coming in the back door of the comedy store one night. I'm in a hurry to make my spot because I over the improv and I rush over to the comedy store. And like three comedy store comics are standing there. And uh, 
I can only remember one of them, Carl, Carl. I can't remember his last name right now. Anyway, he, sta- he walks in front of me, like blocks my way. I go, what's up? He goes, well, you're, a, you're an improv comic, man. What are you doing here? I said, I'm a work anywhere I want to work comic. And if you don't want to be on your ass comic, you better move out of my way right now. And I, I hear this chuckle. I turn around and Kenneth is like laughing. He's like, he says, you better move, Carl. You better oh, move. Funny. You better move, Carl. That's and they so step awesome. aside. You know, it's like, you know, don't don't fuck with me and don't get in the way of me in the stage. Right. Yeah. My livelihood. Yeah. That's beautiful. But, but it was like, you know, there was still that kind of vibe. Between that's, comics. That's, that's got a movie scene quality yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the reveal. It's Kinnison <laughs> laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there awesome. would never be a strike again. Do you th- like, like, I don't think enough comics could come together. No, you know, this, this again, a particular time, there, there was no road then. So everything was in a, L.A. Right. as far as they knew, that everything was here. And so careers were being made. Yeah. And they, she was making so much money. They tried to come to New York. Tom Dreesen came. A couple of people came. Let's get a, let's get a, a union together in New York. Well, they came in 1980. The road was blowing up. I'm on the road. I mean, they, they, you, you can't imagine. These clubs were packed. We were like rock stars. You go in the first week, they go, you kill. They go, when can you come back, man? The club owner's like, I'll pay you twice as much. <laughs> yeah. The, the salaries were literally doubling, doubling, doubling. And so they come in, they go, hey, we need to go on strike so we can get 25 bucks more, you know, a set here. And I go, forget here, man. This is just a workout gym. Right. The money's out in the road. Anybody who's here, here, think you're going to make a living sitting around New York? Forget it, man. you got to travel. Absolutely. I mean, you knew the principal at first, right? You knew it. Right. I'm not going to make money in my apartment. People aren't going to come. I have to travel yeah. to go to places. But yeah, because nowhere, to and, this day, nowhere right. in Los Angeles or New York right. pays much money. Right. So, no. so, so. They were trying to go like tell people, no, you may. So com- some comics are n- inherently lazy. Going, sure. I just want to like live here in New York and go to my apartment. If I could get down to the improv and catch and make a couple hundred a <laughs> right. week, man, I'd be great. <laughs> well, you and can't. Like, no, no, no. So it didn't. It never took any traction. Never got anywhere in New York. Wow. Because it, by the time it got there, right. the road was blowing up. Right. This is one of there's no union whatsoever. None. Yeah. First of all, you have to establish that. Oh, oh, and, and then, there's always gonna be scabs. And, always, 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 always. always oh, you know comics lowball each other all the time. Yeah. It's the first thing they do. Where, where'd you get that gig? Really? Then they call up the gig. I'll do it for less money. <laughs> well, look at uh, you know, there's that great site Gig Masters where it's all just a money thing. It's like I can outbid you, it's like a price line uh, just, kind of thing. Uh, right. Nobody cares. Right. Next and all they want know, is a warm body on stage. You know, they don't you, give a shit. You talk to Go talk to like magicians and stuff in Vegas. They hate certain comics because oh yeah, because they had a great living. They were making twenty five hundred, three grand a week, opening up for people. And all of a sudden, comics who weren't getting any work on the road looked at Vegas and went, back in the late eighties, the early nineties, went, oh, this is fertile territory. And these comics moved out there from L.A. and they started lowballing all these these <laughs> by magicians. Half. By, yeah, by, by half, by half, yeah. Whatever. Now, now you can't. Now you got like ninety comics hanging around Vegas who don't make any money. You know, lowballing each other. They're doing opening sets at, at the Laugh Factory for twenty five bucks a head. They're doing twenty five bucks a piece. Yeah. But there's eight comics living in some shitty apartment out in a Vegas track. <laughs> you know. Well, Matt and I have talked about this before. There was nothing worse working in Vegas. I mean, even just recently, where you would check into the hotel at Harrah's and you would check in and be like, Hey, can I get? I'm here for six nights. Can I get a room with a view? Yeah, that's going to be an extra twenty a night. And I'm like, You're trying to make money off. I'm here working. You know what I mean? Can I get the internet? Well, nope, that's another twenty. But I'm like, Wow. When I started, when I got to New York at 79, that was how you made money, your opening act in Vegas. That was mm-hmm. the only career path we saw. Nobody's getting sitcoms. Nobody's getting shows. So they go, you know, if you're really good, good, you can become an opening act in Vegas and make 15, 20 grand a week. 
Wow. I mean, when I, my first contracts opening up in Vegas in the early 80s were unbelievable compared wow. to today. That's 75, awesome. 10 grand a week for five, six shows. I mean, it, you, it's it now, like I said, 25 bucks a set. You know, that's what these opening acts <laughs> and are if they throw you, And if they throw you a buffet ticket, you are yeah. a pig. You're in. You love no, that they cafeteria got pass. They're cafeteria pass. Yeah. And, and, and the people who work in a hotel cleaning rooms, they won't eat in the cafeteria. Right. I will. Right. Right. The EDR. You're goddamn right I'll eat, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, too. Well, well, they always say, too, they're always like, hey, you, you eat for I, free I love all it. week. Yeah, you're you a road comic. There's man. certain there's certain cafeterias. Well, if they're like good, the, the Brad Garrett one, whatever that that's is. That's a good okay, one. MGM good one. Okay, the Borgata Casino in Atlantic City. Yeah, that's like that. That's really good. Yeah, I'm just saying there's certain ones. I'm just telling you. Right. What was what was your first big break in L.A. where you're like, oh wow, I'm really glad that I moved here. This is, I, I really feel like I'm making progress here. I got the Tonight Show. That was the big one. Yeah, that was it. I got Tonight Show in '84. So I moved there in 82, and I'm working the road. And, and actually, I went back. Kennison and I decided to, to get out of L.A. for the summer of 84 because the Olympics were here. Okay. And we could see. You could see it coming. <laughs> you know, it was going to be nothing but tourists who didn't speak English in right. the comedy That's clubs. so awesome. Traffic jams. I said, I'm going to New York for the summer <laughs> to get out of this. You know, and he said, yeah. I've never been to New York. I said, come on, come to New York. Oh, son. wow. Come to New York. So we went to New York. I had a place to stay. He didn't have a place. He sort of, you know, you know, just sort of couch surfing, we just say today, like crashed a couple of places. Right. He went there, and Sam was just starting to get his feet under him. He was starting to feel his power, mm-hmm. and they loved him in New York, man. I mean, the first time we went to catch, everybody was like, whoa, who's this guy? And he did Jersey gigs in the Jersey. They loved him. And then uh, I called up uh, a couple of places to get him gigs, you know, on the East Coast, and then they all loved him. And then, like, Toronto, uh, Mark Breslin brought him up there, and he just— he he came back to L.A. with a real swagger. That's awesome. He did the 84. was a big time. And then I was out there doing that, and Jim McCauley just had to be in New York, came to New York and saw me uh, do a set at the Improv and came up to me and went, I'm going to give you a gig. I'm going to give you uh, two weeks. Two weeks. i got a date for you. You're going to wow. do the first Tonight Show. Wow. Let's talk about what you're going to do. And it was like, okay. And did that, like all these comics that have these great stories about doing it and it changing their life immediately, did that happen no, to you? No, it wasn't. I didn't have a, a, you know, Steve Wright do it, come back two nights later. For most people, it takes a couple takes, times, it right? Takes, but like maybe 10 times. I, Steve I, Martin I, said 20 times. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, my God. Yeah, those guys. And that was back in the 70s. Yeah. So it was a different era in the 80s. But there were a couple of people who had, I wasn't one of those people. I, I did have an unusual arc that, like, my first time I did great, second time. You know, the first time I was able to quit drinking and doing drugs like a week before, right? Right. Second time, I just managed to quit doing coke the night before. <laughs> okay. Still, you know, okay. And, and I was hanging out with Ken. Again, I mentioned Kennison because I was hanging out with him a lot. And, and he was like, you know, yeah, you need more edge, man. You need to put some more edge on this. And that's right. a Tonight Show, okay? Yeah. And, of course, I get it in my mind. So the, tonight of my, the night of my second Tonight Show, I'm in the dressing room like an hour or so before the and I'm talking to Jim McCulley, who was the booker. I said, I want to do, and you have your sets locked. Sure. Right, for, for word for word. They want right. to know every single word. Right. Yeah. Every joke approved, vetted. So I said, I want to change the last couple of jokes. I want to do a different <laughs> ending, man. I need some measure. <laughs> and this is insane, but I look back and I go, I was so out of my mind. <laughs> Kennison and I had gone seen this band called Striper. It was a sure. heavy metal Christian band, right. first one. And the lead singer came out and he opened a concert. He said, you know, Jesus was the first rock and roller. And I laughed at the thought. They just minimized 
the Son of God put him in the showbiz. Right. Know? So I said, then Jesus must have had an agent. I said, I did a bit about Jesus talking to his agent. Uh-huh. You, know? you got to get me out of the hills and valleys. I'm dying out there. Right, right. <laughs> put me into the temple. That's where the money, you know, this yeah, whole yeah. bit, right? Right. I do this for Jim McClain. You can't do that all tonight, Joe. It's got Jesus it's in got it. got Jesus all over. He said, we're not going to, you're not going to, you're making fun. No, 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 you can't. I said, then I had a backup. I said, well, I got, uh, Barney Clark was the first artificial heart recipient back then. So I had a couple jokes on Barney Clark with his artificial heart and um, the defibrillator paddles about having a heart attack. How the the cure is scary as the you know I mean right. they, they lift your body off the table you know these things clear the fly and I did this two jokes and I just wore him down. I was just out of my mind. He uh-huh. said, "Okay, okay, I'll let you do those. Switch out and do those two jokes." This is right before the right taping. before the taping. Okay. I was gonna say, why, isn't he wondering why do you want to switch him? Because I was. I, I, I just, was just out of my mind. I was obsessed out of my <laughs> mind and and just wore him down. Yeah. And he, he's like, okay, man. Okay. I'll trust you, man. Let's do it. And the only thing that saved me was he approved them. I did him. You know, you look over. First time, Johnny's got the big circle finger. Like, are you okay? You know, I was so close. He said, you were so close to doing panel. They had time. He's going to pull you over. Second time I look over, Johnny's not looking at me. He's tapping his pencil on the desk. Right. That's the drum roll of death, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get back. I, I knew something was up. I go back behind the curtain. Macaulay is sweating bullets at me. And he says, come on, come on, come on. And he shovels me into my dressing room and says, don't leave here. There's some beer in the fridge. Don't leave here. Do not poke your head outside of this dress room. Close the door, comes back. Half hour later, Johnny hated those jokes. Okay. Because Carson was a chain smoker. He smoked like four packs a day. He was, had a big fear of heart attacks. Right. So he didn't want to hear my heart attack joke. <laughs> right. And so uh, they told me, I, I don't leave the dressing room until Carson has left Oh, you're you like get bitched out or no, 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 I'm not done. I'm or... not gonna do anymore. He said, right. You're not, he said, I'm not gonna be able to get you back on the show. Gotcha. Wow. And the, the, it's a it's a lot more story to it, but it took it, I got sober and I was doing new material, doing new act, doing new edit. Everything was different. Yeah. And um, I got back on by doing Merv Griffin's show back then. So Macaulay sees me, he goes, I'm gonna try to get you back on the tonight show. I think Johnny will love what you're doing. Now. Rich, how many years is this between this that second a, time? So and the, 80, third? Eight, the first one's like Beginning of 85, like a year later, beginning of 86, he comes up to me. He says, you're totally different, man. I'll try to get you back on. Can I just ask, when you're doing those jokes that you just switch out at the last minute, yeah. are, do you feel that they're dying? No, no, you... they didn't die. The audience laughed. Oh, he just didn't. They did not die. Carson I, just when didn't I, like when I finished it, words. I looked over at Johnny like going, he's going to be like, hey, come <laughs> on over. You got the edge. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's the, the edge we're That's looking the for. Edge. Yeah. <laughs> Guest host. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was right. I had a fantasy. And uh, so then you go. Back, you already I'm, guest hosting in your head while you're. Yeah, 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 yeah. I go. Well, I guess this is my move. I'm making my move. So then, oh, how man. many? It was years? like the shoot. You know, like the pull to shoot. <laughs> Trap door opens. I go into a shark infested pool. Um, yeah. So like a year later, uh, and Macaulay says, I, I, "But you got to do like a." Uh, uh, it's like a rehab assignment. Go do Merv Griffin, like a minor league pitcher rehab assignment. Yeah. You know? Go do a Merv and make sure everything's okay and you do this. So I do a Merv. This is, um, I can't even believe the story. It's really true. So I do the Merv and before the, the Merv taping, I'm backstage and, you know, and, and the talent coordinator, Les Sinclair, this Australian guy, really nice guy, comes up and says, listen, we got, a, we got an audience today. It's all Jewish from an old retirement home, all old Jewish people from retirement home. And I'm like, why? I, in my mind, I remember thinking, why is he telling me this? I'm just doing a Merv set. It's a real safe right. material. I don't know why he's telling me this. Doesn't matter. We go behind the curtain. I'm ready to go on the next. The the guest who was out at the time was Diane Cannon, an actress, Diane Cannon. Okay. And so she's promoting this movie called Jenny's War, 
and Merv is like, oh, this is very serious work. She goes, yes, it's, it is. He says, let's, let's look at a clip. Oh, dude. You know what the clip is? No. She's dressed like a concentration camp That's victim. That's what I'm guessing. German Nazi, Gestapo, <laughs> complete beating her up. Beating her up. They should have told her who was in the audience, not you. Right? Wow. <laughs> literally, literally. They cut from that. Merv goes, oh, that was very serious. Let's bring out our next entertainer. We need some fun. I'm blonde hair, blue eyed. I might as well have goose stepped out onto the stage, man. Right. Now here's I mean, Hitler Youth. Yes. <laughs> it's just to drive Welcome. on the point that they're still out there looking for you. Wow. And I mean, so I'm I bombed. I mean, I mean, it's like every joke, nothing, nothing, not a thing. And Seinfeld, I remember him saying at one point, when if you're doing a talk show and a joke slips, you know, you, you drop one. Don't panic. Look at the camera. Nod your head. It gives them a moment for them to put the laughter in later. They'll just yep. add the laughter later. Right. I did that after every joke. It was like psychotic. <laughs> every joke. Pause. Pause. It was like dress rehearsal. Right. And I don't know why I was doing it. Just instinctively. I just I just stayed. I, everything in my body was like, leave. Cut it short. Fuck with the audience. Start goofing around. Try to make some sort of say, hey, folks, I know you got a problem with it. You know, whatever. Just to, you know, I didn't. I just did my set. Walked off. That is the move on TV to stick to the script, really. I didn't know that. So I right? come off, I bomb badly. Les Sinclair was like, I'm so sorry, man. I'm so sorry. I said, eh, you know, what are you going to do? Like, oh my God, I'm done. I'm done, right? I'm done. Yeah. My rehab assignment, man, I got bombed. <laughs> I mean, he's like a pitcher going out and just getting 19 home runs in the first inning. Yeah. Macaulay comes up to me a couple nights later at the improv. I said, I heard what happened to, to Merv. I went, oh man. He said, you took your beating like a man. You didn't panic. You didn't blame the audience. You didn't break character. You didn't break. You, you did your whole set. You're ready to do Carson again. Wow. Beautiful. Two weeks later, I'm doing Carson again. Then I did like 12. I think I did like 14 altogether. And do you know if they added the laughter or not? Yeah. Oh, no. I got a tape. I got a tape. <laughs> this is how so funny this is. I got, wish I could show you right now. So you see me do a joke. Yeah. I look. It's like psychotic smile, smile, <laughs> nod. You hear the laughter. Then they do an audience reaction shot. They're staring. They're like, drop jaw just staring because they're just still in shock. So you don't know where the laughter is coming from. It's right, like there's no right. there's no basis for the laughter. There's like two or three audience reaction shots. They just do instinctively. Not the, the director didn't go. You know, don't do the audience reaction shots for the comic this time because they're all in shock. Right. right. They just don't put them in there. They, I think one of the best shows that edits that in is Comics Unleashed. That has oh to be. Oh my god. Because when they show the top of the audience at the beginning, people are sitting there with their arms folded, they look stoned, they look dazed, <laughs> yeah. and then all of a sudden Byron comes out, he's doing these first couple jokes, they're killing, yeah. and yeah. then even when the comics come out, it, yeah. it's all just getting this forced laughter. Yeah, it's yeah. all, it's all, yeah. So when you did Carson for the third time, right after this Merv Griffin appearance, yeah. how did that go? Was that so much Killed. better? I yeah. did so great, uh, uh, and the fourth time I did panel, after I did the third time, Phyllis Diller, that's when she called me, the first time she called me up. Uh-huh. She goes, you do that men-women thing, man. You really got that, man. I just, I'm doing a bad Phyllis Diller, but we became we'll friends. Take it. We yeah. became friends. <laughs> we became friends. You know, she invite me over for lunch, and we hang out, and we talk history. And that's where she's like, you know, you, we you should do some sort of. Nobody's done a book on the history of stand-up. You know, that's it. Which is how this one originated. So then I just did this one era here. That's all. I just could do the one era that I lived. Because right. I, did, I can make it funny because I can do the is, stories. I can make it funny. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, it's yeah. much better through yeah. experience yeah. than yeah. like a than I like tried to a cover history book. Yeah, every every aspect. I tried to cover every aspect. You know, heckling a story on heckling, or yeah. or a story on on you know joke thievery. I just tried to cover every aspect. How did I killed come to be? I killed. Uh, I was writing for. It was this awesome. is really weird. This is weird. Blue collar TV, right? It was a terrible show. Great idea, terrible show. So one day in the in the writers' room, 
a bunch of comics there. There were young guys like Blaine Capatz. There were people wow. my, my age, you know. There were a lot of different writers who'd done stand-up. And then there were stars of the show were there. Jeff Foxworthy, Bill Engvall, Ron White, Larry the Cable Guy. So everybody starts telling stand-up stories. Mm-hmm. And the, everybody in the writer's room, there's like you know 15 writers who aren't stand-ups sitting there. Everybody's howling. We're all going back and forth, trade stand-up stories. Mm-hmm. And then people are coming in from down the hallway who heard all the laughter coming in. And at the end of it, one of the young writers, I can't remember her name, this young woman writer says, you should write a book on that, man. She had the idea. She said, you should. I said, I've been thinking about this. She said, do it. Right. So then I got Mark Schiff, who was a friend of mine. Right. Because I didn't want to do it by myself, and I was too busy, honestly. I just, I said, this way we can, every, he know, who he doesn't know, I know, and vice versa. We just get everybody we can. And it's all these great little stories, stories about yeah. everybody. There's stories I wanted to get down. They were just up in the ether for my generation, and every generation has them. Yeah. There were these stories I said, we're just going to lose them. Like, the, you know, the, and, and some of them I kind of heard, but I didn't hear the whole story, like Seinfeld getting the glass thrown at him in yeah. The Rising Star or those kind of stories. And uh, it was great to hear the whole story. And then, like Robert Schimmel, some guys would give you, I'd tape most of them because most comics don't want to write them. I think Alan yeah. Havey was only one of the only guys who wrote his own story out. Everybody else was on the phone or in person, taped them. Right. Schimmel, 16 stories. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. I mean, he just couldn't stop. He says, how about another one? I go, Robert, you're <laughs> making taste. me laugh. You yeah. can talk all day, man. He was right. killing me. Do you remember the, what, a, what a great Schimmel story was? Do you have a, a good oh, one? Oh, I got great ones. Uh, you want to hear the Steve Any, Martin one? Sure. Yes. So Sh- Schimmel, when he comes out to L.A. Uh, back in like 79, 80, is a stereo salesman. So he works at Beverly Stereo over in West Hollywood, high-end stereo place. Okay. One day you get a call. Steve Martin wants somebody to bring the best stereo you got over to his Beverly Hills house and set it up. Schimmel says, I grabbed it. I said, nobody's taking this one. This is me. <laughs> right. I'm just starting to do stand-up. I'm doing it. So he gets some banging offs and the best he could get. He goes over there. He's setting it up in Steve Martin's living room, and Steve Martin's sitting there watching him as he sets it up. Schimmel says, I can't help myself. I got to do my act. So I'm filtering <laughs> in my jokes. As he's setting up the stereo. Right. He's doing his jokes. And he's getting nothing. Steve Martin's just staring at him. Right. Nothing. Right. Joke after joke. Uh-huh. Finally, he snaps. I mean, Schimmel can't take it anymore. He, he tries. You know, Steve, I'm a comedian too. And Steve Martin looks at him and says, no, you're a stereo installer. <laughs> when you make your living doing stand-up comedy, then you can call yourself a stand-up comic. Cut to five years later, Schimmel does his first CD. Mm-hmm. Who does the liner notes? Steve Martin. Wow. wow. Um, and so how did that happen? Like, did, because he had the same, become... he, he became, he became, uh, managed by William McEwen, okay. who used to manage Steve Martin. Right. So then Steve remembered the story. Schimmel told me that Steve yeah. said, oh, I remember that. Well, I think I owe you something because you are definitely a professional comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your, I know this is going to be a really loaded question, but what would you say was your favorite story in of I Of Schimmel? Oh, my favorite story of yeah. I Killed? I'd I, I say, love that I'd, book. Have, I'd have to say Chris Rock's story, which he put in his movie, uh, Take Five, which was that was it Top Five, five. Top, top Five, five yeah. When he took Top Five, when he did about the the guy in Houston who, who who set him up with the two women who turned out to be hookers instead of just party girls. What's the story? I think I <laughs> yeah, remember so, this. But so tell our so he's he comes to Houston. The guy goes, "I'm the man." Uh-huh. He's the promoter, like Schimmel. <laughs> I mean, not Schimmel. I'm confused. Chris Rock is there doing his coming out, and he goes to Houston for the first time. And this guy's, I'm the man. Whatever you need in Houston, I got it, man. I got it. 
whatever you want. So they're out partying, and uh, there's a couple of women there in, in this uh, bar, and, and Chris Rock noticed me. And the guy goes, you like them? You like them? You got them, man. I'll set you up. I got it. And he goes over and talks to the women. They come over and hanging out. Chris Rock takes them both back to the room. He goes, I can't believe this, man. I'm in show business, man. I look at somebody. They say, I got it for you. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, goes crazy with these women. The guy... <laughs> The guy had hired two hookers. They were just two hookers. So the more they're like at the end of the day, they're like, "Where's our money? Where's our money?" He said, "What do you mean money? I got no money. Yeah. I don't have that kind of money. Yeah, we're supposed to get a couple grand here. Come on, buddy." And he said, "I don't have any money. Oh, somebody's gonna get hurt." And, and meanwhile, that guy had left. Oh yeah, he was yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah, gone. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But he wanted to be the big shot for a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. And that you know, it's funny because we had on Jordan Brady a couple of weeks ago. Right. We talked about I Am Comic, his brand new movie I Am Battle Comic, which is great. Yeah. How did you get involved with that movie to be part of that? Because that was a great movie. You saw that, right? I Matt? saw it. And were you? You actually had not been doing stand up for a while. Yeah, yeah you're taking by, a break. By, by yeah, not taking a break, by. I started writing for TV. A couple, there's a couple of yeah. stories in my book about it. I got heckled by Sean Penn in South Carolina, and it, this whole thing evolved. And I came back. I started writing for Roseanne and TV shows. So that's like '93. By the '97, I'm really not doing. I'm just writing for TV, and I'm not doing stand up much. And what did at you all. think about stand up in general at that point? Because it was kind of dead, right? Did you think of it as kind of a, a dead art? Or well, you or know what, what happened? I tell. I'll be honest with you. I got bitter, and the uh-huh. reason I got bitter is I started thinking I. I should get something else out of stand-up other than making people laugh. Gotcha. I got into it just to hear people laugh. I loved right. it. And I got away from that. I started thinking, gee, I didn't get my sitcom. I'm not good enough. Right. I didn't get this. I didn't get the, I didn't jump into, you know, the Snake River jump is theaters, going from the comedy clubs to theaters. Right. And I didn't make that leap. Right. right? And I started getting bitter. Like, I'm, I didn't make it. I was a, I'm a failure, you know? And I and I, I, start, I lost sight of what I, why I did stand It happens because you know so many yeah. people. You're right. friends with all I these people that are it. doing better or worse than you. You don't think about the people that are doing worse. Yeah. Never. You think about the people that are doing better. Absolutely. That's right, Matt. That's right. <laughs> you get lost. Yeah. So I, 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 I uh, was writing and I just stopped doing stand up. And then uh, I did the book. We did the book I killed. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Brady came up to me and he said, I want to do a, a documentary on stand up comedy. Uh, you want to get involved? You want to do it? I said, yeah, because I, I, there's things I really want to talk about the personality of stand-up comedy, uh, the, the, what it takes to do it and the kind of people are doing it. There are things I wanted to ask every comic, which we kind of got away from a little bit because uh, Jordan saw me as a storyline. Okay, right? yeah, I mean, yeah, right. right. Uh, I wanted to ask every comic, do you remember your first laugh, getting your first laugh? Mm-hmm. Like we asked Erwin Corey. We interviewed Erwin Corey like 2009. He was 95 years old. He remembered his first laugh, mm-hmm. like right off the top of his head. Didn't even hesitate. Right. Brooklyn Jewish Orphanage, <laughs> 1922. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. Right. So I wanted these are things I wanted to do. So we started doing it. And after we were doing it for a little while, interviewing comics and all, uh, Jordan, one night we were at um, um, uh, over the 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 um, Upright Citizens Brigade over mm-hmm. on, on Franklin. Right. In that little theater. Great little room, right? And we're watching some young comics work, and he just saw this look on my face. He goes, you think you want to try it again? <laughs> I was like, I was lusting. I was lusting over those laughs, man. I'd see these young guys scoring these laughs. i go, I'd like to get a little bit of that taste. Right. Sure. Right. And uh, and he just, you know, said, okay, let's let's try you going back on stage again. And, of course, that's what happened. Were you and, instrumental in kind of helping set up? Because you had a lot of great interviews in that. Yeah, yeah, that movie. yeah. Well, we he 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 set some up, and I set some up. Yeah, that's yeah. We were, we were doing it together, sort of. One of my favorite moments from that movie was you were in Tampa. 
and you were at the comedy condo with Nikki Glaser. Yeah, right? yeah. And that other guy came to the door, yeah, yeah. And he was bringing her drugs, or they yeah, smoke yeah, out yeah, or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah. And yeah. it was just, it was funny, like your reaction to oh, that. Oh, it was like, hilarious. Yeah, it was. I mean, because that was just such a great moment, just on the road and people just sitting. And I remember, stay, have you stayed at that condo for the Tampa Improv? I think so. Yeah. Such a piece of shit. They it's put in me in there with like a waiter they had just hired. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, it's you really... guys can easily steal my shit. He doesn't even live in this. Town. Well, well you, <laughs> that that whole idea got so perverted so fast, yeah. man. I saw that happen because at first we were in hotels, and then the comedy condo thing. You know, they go, "Hey, we put these monkeys in a cage." Yep. Yeah. They, they, it's cheaper, and and they'd have the girlfriend of the of the bar manager come clean it up once a week, which basically walk through and change a roll of toilet paper and leave. <laughs> yeah. I no. always knew the kiss of death for any condo was when they would tell you the key was under the planter. <laughs> like you're, so, that so means you're, anybody can that see That means everybody. anybody. <laughs> oh, man. Or, or you travel. I had this in Hartford. You travel all night. You get to the condo. You find the key, and there's somebody laying on the couch, and I'm yeah. just like, this isn't going to work. Oh, you right. know what I mean? And the Atlanta, Atlanta Punchline, they went, and hired, they went and rented a house, like a four-bedroom house, like two blocks from the club, which then became, back in the 80s, sort of like a hub because comics all through the southeast say they're going to Alabama or they're going through to another place. Yeah. They had a couple of days off. They'd go into Atlanta and crash there. So you'd go there for your week. There might be five or six other comics hanging around there. Right. Yeah. You know, in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, waiting to go to another gig. What about, wasn't there sort of, and I do mean sort of, wasn't there sort of a comedy condo at the comedy store where, like, Kinnison would live Well, that was the, back there. She had that house. Now, I'm not... I was. I know that's a different yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, there was a. They had a house behind it, and yes, those were comics Certain that lived there. Certain people were allowed to. They live were allowed there, to. Right? You had there. to be approved. Dice right? Clay, Kennison. There were a lot of people who lived up there from right. time to time, and that I, I partied up there, and believe me, I don't know how anybody ever got any sleep there. Yeah. Because I never. I mean, there, it was like all through the night. I mean, you just go there. It was, it was like every comic who wanted to party would go there. And kind of the party would continue from the store. To, uh, uh, to yeah, the because con- there was no the bar at the store to hang out. There was uh, no place to hang out at the store. The improv had a bar and a little restaurant area. Yeah. So you could hang out there and drink. But there was no place at the store Interesting. to hang out and drink or whatever. I mean, you right. stand out in a parking lot, smoke a cigarette joint, whatever. Yeah. Or you'd, you'd be inside. You'd get a drink from the bar and then walk around the, in the hallway scaring each <laughs> yeah. other because the place was so dark. It was always like a fun house. Could you imagine, like, you're looking at apartments to live, and they you're asking, hey, who lives here? Who's the neighbor? Oh, uh, nobody. That's just the comedy <laughs> condo. That's just where the comics stay. Yeah. Uh, b- by ben, the way. are you sleeping in my bed again? <laughs> by the way, the fucking bed, Monday yeah. through Wednesday night, nobody's here. Yeah. <laughs> but Thursday through Sunday, it's a whole nother You're not going to like the mornings. Right. I mean, just it's it's that's why it always it, it always baffles me. The comedy store in La Jolla, that condo's great, right on the beach. But could you imagine being the neighbors who have spent no. tons of money? No. To have They've that lost ocean a deal? lot. The, the first comedy condo they had in on the East Coast was the Fort Lauderdale Comic Strip, 1980. So they start off in this high rise, really nice place, and it's a nice high rise and a con- actual condo in there. And, of course, it's the Marx Brothers. I mean, doors are slamming, people are all night coming in and out, and the neighbors complain, and they lost that thing in a month. Wow. Plus, they put a telephone in there. They put a telephone for us to use, for the commies use. First night, commies are calling, literally, around the world. I walk over, Mark Schiff is calling Afghanistan. Right. I mean, literally, literally. Yeah. And this is before Afghanistan was anything. He says, I just yeah. want to see if I can talk just to somebody, somebody pick up. in Kabul, you know? 
You always see yeah, that like but, in the green rooms too. Like, oh, direct TV. Let's see if these pay per views will right, work. Right, right. The phone is <laughs> yeah. Comics. Will, what, what can we get over on? Yeah, right. we're getting ripped off financially, so let's yeah. screw them in another way. Right. Like, taking bottles of water home. Passive aggressive payment system. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Passive aggressive. Rich, what was your favorite part of doing I Am Comic? What What did you love most about that movie? Talking to the comics, I yeah, mean, really. I mean, I, I, uh, Shimo and I talked, right? You know, and and and, and he had gone through cancer and divorce, right? And I was like, "There's, you think there's anything that ever happened that would cause you to quit doing stand up?" He said, "No," and then, you know, he died not that long later. I, I one of my favorites was uh, uh, talking to, um, God, I can't think of his name now, Greg uh, Geraldo. Geraldo. Okay. So. You know, he talked about the palpable feeling on the on on the screen. It's actually in the movie about the feeling of the laughter hitting you. Right. So then he he said to me, he said, "You're sober a long time." I said, "Yeah." He said, yeah, "I like to talk about that." So I said, "Jordan, turn off the camera." Yeah. And I didn't even trust it. I said, "Take the camera out of here." So him and I talked off camera for about 15, 20 minutes, and he had a hard time accepting. And this is what I understood because I totally understood it. Although I hit it when right. I was sober, he was hitting it when he's not sober yet of where he was in comedy in relation to other people. You know, he was doing that comparison game. Yeah. How was... come this guy's filling right, theaters right, right. and I'm as funny as everybody? I said, why don't you just get sober and see where it takes you? Let your talent take you wherever it's going to take you. you know? Yeah. I, that's all I could tell him. I said, it's not going to change. You're not going to change it by drinking more or doing drugs more. Right, right. You know, whatever you've been doing, try something different. Right. I mean, Kennison had a different problem. Kennison, when he was getting sober, when trying to get sober, was like he thought he'd painted himself in the comedic corner with a necrophilia bit. Like, how am I going to do anything to top that? How mm-hmm. am I going to – remember that bit? Yeah, of course. Right, it was a classic. I mean, at the time, it was off the chart. Yeah, how am I going to – I said, Sam, get sober, see what else comes out. Yeah. Something else will come out. But you got to try to do something different because what you're doing now is not working. You're in a corner. Right. Right. So I'm not saying, look, everybody, change your perception is what we're always looking for when we're doing drugs or alcohol. Try to find something different, get a new, you know, you're looking in the mind shaft for jokes. You know, a lot of time you're working a blind. What can I do to get me to something different? And I get that, you know, but if you're an addict or an alcoholic at a certain point, it, it, you're, in a, you're in a box canyon. Your new perspective needs to be surprising. Something new, it does right. the same thing. Right, right. Reverse. Right. There was a guy named uh, John Sales who's a, a writer-director. I always liked a lot of movies, Matawan. And, and, and um, so he said, you know, creativity is in the making and breaking of habits. Making or breaking. Mm-hmm. That's where cre- creativity lies, which I always kind of liked that, that statement. It makes sense. So, yeah, if you're if you're... If you're killing yourself with alcohol and drugs and you're you're not coming up with anything new, you got to do something new. And like yeah. you said, sobriety change. would be the new change. Yeah. He was, I mean, there were so many people that we lost way too soon. I mean, and the ironic part, the Schimmel thing is you know, the fact that he died in the car accident was just incredible. Right, right. And he'd been, and again, he'd been through so many things. So much. His son dying of cancer, then him getting cancer and going through divorces and... And uh, he was just a funny, funny guy. Man. Absolutely. I mean, you ever hear a story about about how he got into business? I got this is uh, this is another show. I'll tell you another shimble story. Yeah, please. love it, love it. So he's he's a, a stereo salesman in Phoenix. So he comes for the big uh, electronic convention they have once a year in L.A. for L.A. Right. Uh-huh. And he comes there and his his sister signed him up at the Improv. He wants to go see the comedy show. He's a comedy fan, so he wants to go to the Improv. His sister, he doesn't know it. Sunday night, she got him on the list to audition. So mm-hmm. he'd been thinking about things like we all had. He, right. He, he had some ideas and he went up, uh, did did the audition night and Bud passed him. His first wow. time. Bud goes, but you can you can be a regular here. So Schimmel goes back to his wife in Phoenix and says, we're done in Phoenix. 
we're moving to L.A. She goes, wow. what? Because getting rid of the house, they can sell it later. We're leaving now. Pack up. She goes, what? Because, yeah, we're gone. I, I have been passed at the improv. I am in show business. It's so funny. You know? And I, I, I side with him. Right. But then I think about the wife. Like, she must right. be like, what the fuck are you talking about? He doesn't realize, as he told me, he says, I didn't know I've been passed. I think I'm in. Right. I mean, past just means you get to go hang out. <laughs> yeah. And go late at night, go two in the morning, clean sure. up the mess, right? Or uh, end the sure. chase rack to finally get him out of the, out right. of the room. If you're lucky. Right. You if get you're lucky. Spot. Right. Yeah. So he gets them all packed up. You hold driving across. The, he says his wife is bitching to him the entire <laughs> six hours. I cannot believe this. We got to get news. I don't know where we're going. Don't know where we're going. I'm in show business. Right. So finally, he comes, he's hitting LA around dawn. He says, I'm going to show you where I'm going to be working. I'm going to show you this place, <laughs> oh my this God, comedy man. club. I'm going to show you. We're going to go right there before you even go to the apartment that I rented, you know, like a monthly rental in right. West Hollywood. Before you even go there, I'm going to show you this apartment to show you where I'm going to be. They pull up the improv. It had been burned down the night before. <laughs> he pulls up at smoldering ruins. That's too His funny, His wife just man. starts hitting him. <laughs> He's like, what can I say? <laughs> She had a point. <laughs> if we turn yeah, around now and hit the 10 East, we could be home by 4 p.m. Now he's got to go past at the store. That's a whole <laughs> different thing. And he's only done comedy once. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Is that club still open? Yeah. Did it burn down? Yeah. That's crazy. You must have so many great memories. And, and obviously the reason for the book, but just right. so many great memories of, you know, we talk about this so much. I mean, Despite the ups and downs of this business, and, and Matt and I have been at this for a long time, but I mostly will say ups, this. Mostly ups. <laughs> mostly ups. <laughs> but, but I will say this. No matter how much this business kicks you in the balls, right, there's nothing better than walking into the improv on any given night and having this very cool sense of family and camaraderie yeah. and, and just knowing that all those other people who are around you, whether they're at the high or the low right. – Everybody can relate to the situation right. that, that you're in. And, you know, obviously, you know, more people want to be up here. Uh, but, uh, again, what Matt was saying, too, is, like, you're always looking at people who have passed you, not the people who I've known for a long time that are very funny, that can't get work, but also, can't. But also what Rich is saying is just enjoying it for what it is. Yeah. Right. And not for any kind of reward or punishment. It's, it's its own, it's it's its own and, thing. Like, when you do a TV spot and someone goes, what would you get out of that? I got the fucking TV spot. That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's what I got. And what I love about it is the George Burns said, the comic soul is eternal. The personality of the comic is the same now as it was 100 years ago, 120 years ago. doesn't matter. That's what I love about it. So if I'm hanging out and I, some guys are younger, 30, 40 years younger, but they're professional comics the work, right. right? I know who they are. I, I get it. They get it. All the circumstances may be different. But the personality of the comics is the same. I study all these old comics and the stuff they say, the stuff they did and all, it's just it's the same. Yeah. It's it doesn't it's just the even the jokes are basically the same. Absolutely. I got a story in there about the when we saw um uh Maury Amsterdam at the at Cantor's one night. Oh wow. Uh, uh so it's like eighty two, eighty three, so we're we used to go to Cantor's hang out right. afterwards and they served booze, right? So we could drink. Yeah. And one night I see Maury Amsterdam. Now, for me, in my generation, he played Buddy Sorrell on the Dick Van Dyke show in the early 60s. Okay. So that's how we knew him. Right. Okay? So at this time, he's a 70-year-old guy sitting over there. We're in our you know, late 20s right. sitting over there. I said, let's go talk to Buddy. I got a half a load on. Yeah, let's go talk to Buddy. <laughs> you know? Right? 
And so let's go. So we walk over to the table, and I go, hey, buddy, we're the young comics working over at Bud Free Music. Ah, yeah, boys, I seen you guys over there. I love that place. It's great what you're doing over there. He said, yeah, but we don't do like what you guys do, man. We don't uh-huh. tell jokes. We talk about our lives. Really, really? Tell me one of the things you do. Uh-huh. So I tell him one of my jokes. He goes, that was done by Ricky Craig Jr. in 1937, <laughs> and he does the joke. Absolutely. Wow. And every joke that we tell him. He smacks his back with one. And at the end of it, we're like, just done. He goes, well, whatever you're doing, boys, keep doing it. Whatever yeah. these things you're doing, fantastic. Have fun. So I go back to the improv. I tell Bud Friedman. And Bud goes, oh, man, you got to tell this guy. So he takes me over to the adult table. Bud had this big round table that we called the adult table because the guys sitting there were like Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, you know, all those kind of guys. The Harvey guys. Corman, the, the adults, the main guys, guys who are really, you know. So he takes me over there and I tell the story. They start howling. They go, you ran into a buzzsaw. Maury Amsterdam, <laughs> he wrote for Will Rogers. I didn't know who the guy was. Wow. Right, I was completely right. ignorant. Yeah. He said, he wrote for Will Rogers, man. He, he wrote most of those jokes. He used to sell the same joke to Milton Berle over and over again. <laughs> you know, the guy's, the guy, you know, he, he, he knew everything. And I, I go, I'm completely ignorant. I, that's what I started studying about the history of it because I'm like going, I'm in this business. I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. Well, you guys must have been on top of the world in a sense that, like, your generation, your movement – was the one that blew up. Right. So all your friends are like now like famous and stuff. You're feeling the fame too. You're feeling all of it. Yeah. You might feel like you created the whole fucking thing in a way. We, that's you were we part don't. of yeah, it. That's yeah. right. We thought, you know, thought yeah. like we, you know, you don't know. I mean, I remember listening to the comedy albums when I was young and all, but we think we're doing something different. Yeah. So it's every generation thinks that. You don't, you, you don't want to. I think the audience was thinking that too, though. Well, the audience sure. was our yeah, age. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you're all coming in. Yeah. When you first started these clubs first open, they were like the hippest thing in the world. So you get all these comedy fans come in. I remember people would come up to me, and they might be a little older. They go, hey, man, I saw you. You're very funny. You know, I once saw Lenny Bruce. and this. They, they were real comedy fans that would come in. And then more and more of our generation learned about it, and the audience actually became younger and younger. Yeah. Because it became our generation's date place. That's what really happened. The baby boomers, they, you could no longer really go to a rock concert as a date. So they started getting older, and the people started dating for purpose. You know, like, are yeah. you going to get married and all that sort of thing? Where are you going to go? Well, we'd killed the, the the dinner clubs of our parents. We'd killed those kind of Playboy, those kind of places where you go have a dinner and see a show. They were gone, so the comedy clubs became that place for dating. Yeah, for in the eighties, that's a big part of the attraction. Other than other than the fact that it was just a completely new thing that, that nobody'd seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, and shows like even the Improv were were showing these all these young comics that were available to do this. Yeah, that, what, what do you think? How has the business changed so much? Because if you look at now, you know, comics. Well, I guess personalities are getting famous from posting clips on YouTube and like doing it so much yeah, differently. Yeah, different now. marketing. There's different Dif- marketing, yeah. but there's also so many more comics. I mean, literally, I did a number count in '79, about four, maybe 500 at top comics in the whole country. There are 500 comics on Toledo now. Right. I mean, you just have a numbers game. So when you have those kind of numbers, you can't control anything. Like, we used to be able to control joke thievery. If some guy was a joke thief, he'd get, he'd get shunted, man. He'd get sent out into the desert. Yeah. Sure. He couldn't work the clubs. We'd say, we'd say to the punchline or any of these clubs, you can't hire that guy anymore. So Adam was Leslie's a thief. sort of a union in a way. Right, right. To a sense. Right. Well, you can't do that now. Yeah. You can't even control it anywhere. Right. So there's just so many more comics that you have to, you, every generation has to deal with some sort of struggle to get to the microphone. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. My generation, first of all, you had to find the microphone. Yeah. Where can you do it? Who's got a mic? You, right. Who's got a mic? <laughs> now it's like you got to knock over 40 people to get to it. Yeah. Right. Get it out of the way. Get out of the way. You're doing open mics. You're comics performing for comics. Right. That's, 
that's tough. My generation looking at it going, there's not a worse crowd in the world. That's how I started, yeah. Right? Yeah. But you got to do it. You have to. You got to make them laugh and then make other people laugh, right? Mm-hmm. I had a friend that wants to start doing stand-up older person and basically said hey I, I, I'm seeing all these open mics they just don't seem like they're worthwhile uh, you know what do you know about the improv and the laugh factory I'm yeah, like, let, me, let me bump you yeah, straight to fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. headliner <laughs> yeah, yeah. let, me, let me hook that up I love those guys I'll hook you up with these two chicks over here at the bar too <laughs> It was. <laughs> I love those guys. How do I get on tonight's show? Yeah. Well, I start like just gonna get a right. couple of minutes together and see how you do. I thought I was gonna be that way for me too. I was like, I don't need to do these open mics. Yeah. But I realized pretty quick that I had to do them. Right. You right. Yeah. It, it's funny you're talking about joke thievery. I was working in Vegas years ago and I was hosting. There was a young guy in the middle, and then um, I think it may, might have been like Russ Revis who was headlining. And so I hosted. None of the other guys are in the room as the other guys are performing. I go up and host. Middle guy goes up. He does a joke about uh, when I was a kid, they didn't have timeout. They had knockout, right? Mm-hmm. He gets off, gets a big laugh. Russ goes up there, does that same joke. Uh-huh. Nothing. And Russ is wondering why this hasn't killed because it was killing <laughs> yeah, before. Yeah. A friend of mine said, tomorrow you do the joke opening. And then watch it as it fed. <laughs> like, like, like right. I yeah, kill it. Yeah, nothing. Because yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. nobody else is in the room. But I was like, I don't have the balls to do it. I was just like, I was just like, let those two guys yeah, fight see, over you it. You see that a lot. You, you, I mean, there's so many stories about joke theory. But you get those gray areas like, like crowd work. For some reason, comics always thought anything you do with a crowd is open game. Right. Like, we'll just use that. Anything you come up with. Like I used to do it's this. It's like public domain. Public domain. Yeah. Even though I, I like to come up with my own. Heckler bits. So if some guy was heckling me, I go, you know, I'd say, "Hey, buddy, you got like one brain cell treading water in a sea of beer." Right. right? A funny <laughs> drunk yeah. line on him, and then so, next thing I know, some guy's doing my line. I go, "That's my line, man." Right. Yeah. I mean, you do it. The next guy that sees you do it, they think that's open. And it's gone, and it's gone. Even the intros. It got to a point in the late '80s where everybody was lying about their intros. So you'd have like an opener going, <laughs> "I seen on Tonight Show on HBO." I go, "When did you do the Tonight Show?" It's just an it's just an intro. No, it's not just an intro. When I started in the then late, it makes my intro no good. No kidding. I when I started in the late '90s, like I just started, and MCs were bringing me up that way. He's done yeah. the Tonight Show. I was like, "No, I." Oh, yeah. Even then, I knew it oh, was yeah. wrong. I was like, "No, right. no, I haven't." I have I have a story in book that that uh, I go to Cleveland. Yeah, and the guy puts Dino Vince puts in the ad. This is like 1983, as seen on David Letterman, right? Yeah, I go after the show. I go, Dino. I just saw the ad. You got to take that out, man. It can't be the rest of the week. <laughs> he goes, nobody will know. I said, I know, and it's a line. I don't want it. As yeah. we're discussing this, the crowd is filing out because I came right off the stage. He wasn't there at the beginning of the show. I come yeah. right to him, man. I'm right. hot. This guy walks over, stands there waiting. We're arguing, and a minute Dino goes, "Can I help you?" He said. Yeah, man, he, I just want to ask the comic a question. He goes, when were you on the Letterman show? I said, I was. He goes, I know. I watched every episode. <laughs> I said, right. Dino, you see? So I, I got to the point where I, I go, I'm going to come up with, I, I, I accident, by accident, I came up with a line. I said, I'm the best comic in my price range. I came up with this down the Comedy Zone. Yeah. So the guy who owned it said, that's a great, we'll put that in your ad. That's a funny line. So I said, I'm going to use this as my intro now, just a funny intro instead of, because I can't control yeah, what's going yeah, on in yeah. front of me. With I do that, I come back out on the road. Next time I come back on the road, the comics in front of me. Yep. Best comic in their price range. And then somebody told me Joan Rivers started doing it. Wow. I go, you can't. She's doing theaters. You can't do best comic <laughs> in your price range if you're doing that means you're the best theaters. comic. You're yeah. the best comic. 
You can make that intro shorter. Yeah. yeah always. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I had a friend that was in line waiting to audition for Last Comic Standing. Uh-huh. Like, they showed the line as a an overall visual, and she said you could see her on Last Comic Standing. I was like, no, you were in the line waiting to get in for the auditions. And I saw like, one guy actually had that on his website. It was like, you know when they cut to the commercial and they show a couple comics? Yeah. With no audio? He oh, yeah. He had it in slow motion. He taped it off his TV. <laughs> <and he was> like, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> And then it, it was short, even though it was in slow motion. Just doesn't loop, yeah. doesn't loop yeah. and loop and loop. Yeah, it was just and like, he, it must have been a second in oh real time. Oh my god, man! I know that's that so, happened all the time. A guy, a guy would say that. Go well. I was in the audience. I was in the audience. Yeah, he, he did Letterman. Yeah, I was in the audience. That's not doing that's Letterman. That's not doing it. No. no. By the that's way, so I, I I can't tell you how excited I am because uh, Steve and I are leaving on a flight. We have like a twelve hour flight, and I am so excited to read this book during our flight. I. Rich, I could talk to you for hours and hours oh, man. You guys about great. all Thanks, the stories man. that you yeah, have. Man, By the okay. way, I Killed is one of my favorite comedy books ever. Just so many great stories. Loved I Am Comic. We had Jordan Brady on who talked about his other movies. Yeah. He did I Am Road Comic. Did you see I Am Battle Comic? Have you seen no, that I haven't one yet? seen it yet. He just it. premiered it a couple weeks ago in L.A. Great movie. Um, this is the new one, Kicking Through the Ashes by Rich Scheidner. Uh, and what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a screenplay about the first stand-up comic ever. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. And what's the... Uh, uh, what, is it Jesus? Is fish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta get that edge, Rich. Get that edge, Gotta man. Gotta get that edge, man. Take him out of rock and roll and put him in a comedy. <laughs> See how I did that? He's very good, man. He's the guy's very good over here. Get uh, a call back on my joke. Yeah, called it back. That doesn't yeah, happen often. Yeah. Uh, and what, that just in the early stages, getting that screenplay no, together? I'm actually uh, f- finished in the first draft. So, I mean, I've done all the research. I've done all the... You know, I'm done writing it now. So I'm just... Wow. That's, awesome. that's my next project and you know I have another a, book i'm doing i'm doing uh shows over this place called cool X woodshed where i'm taping stories from this book and, and stories that didn't make the book oh that's like great the time i smoked pot in the naval observatory where the vice president busted me for smoking pot and and this was back in uh water mondale's time uh-huh. oh so wow stories that didn't make the book that i'm performing and awesome. uh, taping them so i'm gonna have like a video log of all these stories and like i opened up for ramones my first job was open up what for ramones. yeah you can't say that at the last minute yeah, yeah. damn it yeah. what year damn was it. that what year was that 78 wow it was my first paying job damn it was in washington dc place called the child harold played live music there and i was hanging out there and drinking and my buddy was a bartender and he told the owner a guy uh-huh. named bill hurd who's a famous bar owner in dc yeah and so he came up to me one night said uh, you want to you want to open up for this band next week i'll give you 50 bucks and I was like, "Fifty? Are we gonna pay me?" Shit. Yeah, I was just scuffling around there. Right. You know? I said, "Yeah," and uh, it was a good deal for him because he had a requirement to provide an opening act because they had a record contract. Yeah, and instead of hiring a local band for five hundred right. bucks, fifty bucks. Me. Sure. They're like, here's the deal, though. You have to be Rich Ramon. Can you well, I, did, well, I didn't know. I didn't know who the band was. Right. I just remember walking up and on this little marquee out front, just a really small from New York City to Ramones. I walk in. Every young guy, every angry young guy from the D.C. metropolitan area was there. Yeah. I'd never seen, you know, this start, the look was starting to happen. The shaved heads. Yeah. I'd never seen this. I was in my post heavy Ang- period. Angry story. white people was starting. Oh, oh no, it yeah. was happening, man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he goes, I go back to the bar. He goes, they're going to kill you, man. <laughs> You're not going to make 15. He was laughing, drinking, you know. He's like, you're not going to make 15 minutes. And I was like, I'm going to make that 15 minutes because I'm going to make that $50. Right. And he was like a rodeo event. I'm going there to the yeah. buzzer goes. Yeah, yeah. He goes, I'll go double or nothing with you. Double or nothing. 100 bucks if you stay on for five. If you don't stay for five, you get nothing. I said, I'll take it. Oh, wow. They intrude. You know, they intrude. It didn't matter. They, they, I don't even know if they, they well, were how listening. They, I don't, no, it's like all they heard was, ladies and gentlemen, not the Ramones. Right. I just had to walk through. It was a small room, so I just, 
It was biblical. I had to walk through. They saw me walking. People were screaming at me, screaming, booing, screaming. (laughs) And I walked in the stage, small little stage, six-inch riser, just right in the middle of the room, small. And they're booing. And then finally (laughs) some guy throws a beer at me. You know, his mug just shoots a butt. Hits me. I don't move. There's a a little stage. I'm right by the amps, right by the drum kit. I got a mic. I'm just holding on. And they start hitting me with beer from every angle. I just stay there. I just take it. I just keep going. Right back. Yeah. I couldn't do any. I couldn't do improv. Yeah, I didn't have nothing. any special. I was just like, right back to Mac. Anyway, my mom said, right back to Mac. Hit with a beer. You know, I'm from New Jersey. Hit with a beer. So you know, finally, the club owner's like, you know, he, he just saw it was a, a yeah. bad thing. All this beer being thrown on the stage. So he's waving the money in the back. Yeah, Come get your money, asshole. Come get it. <laughs> I go back there. I go back behind the bar. I'm soaked from head to toe. Uh, the, there wasn't a green room. It was just the behind the bar was a yeah, kitchen. I go into right. the kitchen. Ramones are standing there waiting to go on. I go back there. I'm toweling off. One of Ramones looks at me and goes, cool act, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. I was saying it'd be cool if you counted off every joke. Like, one, two, three, yeah. four. <laughs> Priest and a rabbi walk into yeah. a bar. Just if saying. I had any yeah. kind of knowledge at that time, <laughs> I'd right, been doing right. it oh, on wow. one, two, part three, time four. for a year. You know, <laughs> no, like, I know. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. no right, freaking right, right. ability. Yeah, yeah, that'd been really great if I had any It's easy in hindsight. You think? You think? I mean, I had no idea. And I didn't know who they were. Sure, sure, sure. No one did then, really. I felt it appropriate to end with a Ramon song. So all my all my titles in the chapters are lyrics I used a, a lyrics from this for a chapter. It is? Yeah, you'll you'll recognize it. I, I can't by the way, so happy to have you in, Rich. I know you're so slam busy. Thank you, man. Thank you for taking the time nah, to do this. It's fun. It's fun. Brand new book, Kicking Through the Ashes. How about a round of applause for Rich Eidner? Yeah. Rich, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. R. Scheidner, R. Scheidner. Yeah? Yeah. There we go. At, at R. Scheidner, R. Rich Scheidner, at Rich Scheidner, R-I-T-C-H-S-H-Y-D-N-E-R. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Will Instagram. you uh, come back on our show? Uh, anytime. We would love it. Anytime. Uh, Matt Fulcheron? Uh, I'm at the full charge everything. What, uh, what gigs you got coming up? Com. What gigs? I'm going to be in Alberta. Alberta, Calgary. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're all over. Uh, first week of June. Comedy roundup. Yeah. Comedy kid. And uh, Steve and I will be doing a big USO tour, and then we'll be back in a couple weeks to talk about it. So I can't wait. Thank you to everybody here at All Things Comedy. Bill Burr, now Madrigal. Appreciate it. This is the gentleman's dojo for another week. We'll see you guys soon. Bye bye. Yeah, man. What's the story get going? I know.